Welcome to Planet Poetry. My name's Robin Houghton. And I'm Peter Kenny. And in this episode, we meet Mark Fiddes and chat to him about his live canon collection, Other Saints Are Available. Also, Peter and I, well, we've been looking deep into the soul, or is it the mechanics of poetry, asking ourselves, do I too dislike it? But before all that soulful stuff, let's hear what Mark Fiddis had to say to Robin. Mark Fiddis is a winner of both the Oxford Brookes University International Prize and the Ruskin Prize. He was third in the National Poetry Competition in 2018 and has been placed or commended in over 50 other competitions. Mark's poems have been published in Poetry Review, The London Magazine, The Irish Times, Magma, The New European and many more. His first full collection, The Rainbow Factory, was published by Templar Poetry in 2016 and his second, Other Saints Are Available, was launched by Live Cannon in 2021. Mark Fiddes, a big welcome to Planet Poetry. Hello, Robin. Good to be on your planet. Speaking of which, where on the planet are you right now? We like to always do this at the beginning, just so that people can like picture, you know, somewhere else on the planet. I'm in United Arab Emirates in Dubai. Oh. And I flip between here and Barcelona and London. I left London kind of living there permanently in 2016, very shortly after that famous boat. And is it lovely and warm out there in the Gulf? I've never been to that part of the world, I have to say. Uh, yeah, it's a time of year. Actually, it's very bearable at the moment. You get these Shamal winds blowing down from Iraq, which can be very thick with sand and cement and all kinds of stuff. So, um, hmm. so, so that's not too pleasant. But at the moment, it's nice. Well, we're here to talk about your your most recent collection, Other Saints Are Available. And there's actually an asterisk at the beginning, isn't there? Uh, sounds like a small detail, but that's kind of very much, we get that reference very much through the book, don't we? This idea of filling in a form, probably an online form. Yeah, it's meant to be a footnote. You remember when you hear a BBC broadcast and, you know, someone accidentally mentions a Mars bar, and suddenly they have to say other chocolate bars are available. Oh, yes, yes. It's really just referencing the fact that our life is full of these icons and whether they're deities or, you know, whether they're incredibly expensive automobiles, you know, they're things that people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. obsess about. And I guess this is just referencing the fact that there's always an alternative and that, that you know, I, I mm -hmm, think, mm -hmm. you know, right now as our discourse polarizes more and more. People seem to be settling in one camp or another. And I suppose a lot of this book is about breaking down the barriers as far as I can, trying to open up discourse. That's part of the reason, actually, that I have to give a credit to my publisher, the wonderful Helen Eason, who uh, actually did the collage on the front of the book. And it is. Oh, did she? Yeah. And, you know, and it is. She's. She's a good collager or collagiste, whatever the word is. She's an incredibly talented person. She, what, is there anything she can't do? That's what I want to know. We've yet to find <laughs> out. So the, the idea of, yeah, um, all of the pictures ripped up on the cover, and one is a Julius Caesar, you know, in a suit of armour with football boots, an astronaut with ballet dress on. This is just yeah, yeah. literally mashing up those categories. Okay, and I think you're going to start by reading a poem which perhaps illustrates this point very well. Lots of cultural references. I think this comes in the genre of pandemic poetry. Is it sort of pan-po or something? I'm quite right. sure. <laughs> yeah. Aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, and, and this probably is a, a an overflowing category, I suspect. But the area that this poem's about is the haircuts of lockdown. Yeah. This is called My Lockdown Quiff. Today, I present as a Burnley defender from the 1970s. I might as well grow sideburns and open a small pub for when the good times roll again. You make a fuss about cutting it. But I've watched you with scissors and bacon making carbonara, laughing like Ingrid Pitt in The Vampire Lovers. Your barber's window 
would display all the heads of state, poorly drawn in pencil as an enticement to passing males. The trumpen helmet, finely spun by evil fairies from chicken wings. The Netanyahu lid, forged from gunmetal and closed to everything. The Boris mop, a pastoral English Merkel with scurf and privileges. The Erdogan shadow, frail remains that still claim to be growing freely. The Kim John bun a black lacquer box of Pandora's surprises. It's not lack of trust in you, but fear of new dictators, popping out of my head unstoppably, requiring moustaches, parades and domesticated tigers. A marble palace of design atrocities might be necessary. Our boundaries redrawn, I'd put a tank on your lawn. Yet tonight... Your calming towel drapes my shoulders. Your comb unknots my dread as your lady shave races down the back of my neck with its electric lady teeth at electric lady speed with electric lady needs. This will be a day we talk of many lockdowns from now when the cracks between tiles sprouted real human hair. Thank you. All the way through this book, I felt there's this kind of, um, you know, humour and and a bit of sadness and a bit of uh, cynicism all kind of mashed up, as it were. And uh, it's great fun, isn't it? Sometimes I sort of think I put things like that into poems and I think, oh, is anyone going to understand this like in 20 years time? But I don't know. (laughs) That doesn't really matter, does it? No, the Burnley (laughs) reference obviously is something that, you know, that, that is of specialist interest. I was going to say that there's this uh, heads come up a lot, you know, and we've got this image of flaming heads, which uh, I spotted in at least two poems. It seems to me that actually your own head is kind of bursting open with all these sort of quirky images and, uh, you know, a cornucopia of references to places and eras, etc. We've got quite a few what I'd call list poems in here and instructions as well. The one you're going to read in a moment, I think, polite safety notice is perhaps in that category. Do you you think in those terms or is it, well, here's the poem, it happens to be in this format? Um, Yeah, I I get your point. And and I think the thing about instructions and lists, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about, you know, it seems that we're always being told what we should be thinking how we should be looking, where we should be going, yeah. how to how yeah. to do things, you know, cookery programs on television saying this is exactly the right way to do it. It's very hard to avoid. So if lists end up in poetry, I'm I'm not surprised. And certainly the idea of safety, you know, this this whole phrase stay safe and keep everyone safe, it really kind of burgeoned, didn't it, during the pandemic? And I for one ended up wanting to eat my own face with anger at all these bloody <laughs> Keep safe. Even though I think at the beginning I probably said it as well. Yeah. And then after a while you think, oh, no. But I think that might lead into your next poem you're going to read because this actually, where did it come in the National Poetry Competition, Mark? Yeah, it was um, uh, honourable third place. Fantastic. Out of what, 15,000, 16,000? And this is, I think you opened the book with this one, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it actually was written before the pandemic. It was hmm. sort of as a, as a reaction to the realisation that most of the planet was being run by very angry men of a certain age. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then I thought to my sons, my younger sons, and, and just what what they must be thinking about this. You know, what, what kind of a example is this? And so this basically this poem takes three generations of man and what they're thinking and how dangerous the whole thing is. It's called Polite Safety Notice. Somewhere near you, a man in late middle age will be sitting on a bench with his head on fire like a safety match. On buses and trains, other men will smolder, suddenly roaring into flame from the neck up. I'd be surprised if you hadn't seen them. They would cry out, but without mouths, their teeth grind away inside their faces. Do not approach them. Like eucalyptus in forest fires, they burn too fiercely to be extinguished. Black oil pumping from a fossil heart, their limbs so wickery and feet already stone. 
It's too late to intervene. You must step away. Let nature take its course. Somewhere near you, a much younger man will be gripping a school desk as his life rockets into the void. His brains will spill over the mocking examination paper, then slop down into the Victorian sewer system, of which we are still so proud. All he's ever learned is what's expected of him. Show no comfort, no doors out, no path back, no window except his peeping phone. What quivered with joy now pushes up his gullet like a great white swan of pain. It's too late to intervene. You must step away. Let nature take its course. Somewhere near you, the man in between will be wearing rubber flippers, running a marathon over razor blades, carrying babies. They'll do anything for attention. Others barricade themselves inside and watch furiously through sandbags or cling to flagpoles or bury themselves alive in golden man pits. Value your sympathy, don't waste it. This was all hardwired from the start. Never is power more toxic than when it's almost spent. Come back in a hundred years. None of this can be saved. It's too late to intervene. You must step away. Let nature take its course. Oh, it's powerful stuff. I mean, I can see how this did well in the national. There's so much going on here. You've got a really interesting form and, you know, some of these images, the great white swan of pain and clinging to flagpoles or bury themselves alive in golden man pits. It's strong stuff. I mean, I read this and thought, I sort of quite strongly felt this is like a an ode of male despair. You know, are men being left behind or something or... I, I don't. I don't know. I sort of felt that to a certain extent, but also this phrase at the end: "Never is power more toxic than when it's almost spent." I'm thinking of some of the world's most powerful and most uh, dangerous men, yeah, who, who who win elections or fake elections or yeah. or don't win them. Yeah. Um, who knows what someone like Putin is going to end up doing? Because you know he's not a young man, and and he's obviously very angry, and he's got generations of anger running through him. So uh, yeah, I thought this was. Uh, an excellent poem. So congratulations on doing so well with that one. Thanks, Robin. But I think you're right. It is a council of despair. And, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's one of the things we do with poetry, I think, is just talk about it, vocalise it as a way of trying to come to terms with it and just almost see it for what it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, there's only one shape poem or concrete poem, whatever you want to call it, in the book. So it sort of stands out, I think. And I liked it, particularly as you've done this very clever thing of writing about, oh, spoiler alert, writing about a murmuration without using that word. Because that's one of those words that's always on people's list of banned words. You know, murmuration or, or, or um, oh, yeah. what's that colour blue that you're not supposed to mention or, or, or cumulus and various words. Yeah, it's, it's up there with moist. I don't mind moist. Doing that. Shard used to be the one, but... but oh, shard, yeah. Shard. <laughs> and I wondered if you might read it for us, Infinity and Her Friends. Sure. Infinity and Her Friends. Even as blue-nested eggs, the starlings must have shared their big secret by speckling in code or morse between shells. How else did they choreograph over frozen dikes and fields such a wild and fluent heart that span through its dark parabolas to express a love only bodies in motion ever comprehend? At least that's how I recall it now. At rest, on a slatted bench as brash parakeets peel away from neatly boxed park trees, too crazy green with each other like teenagers on a shopping spree with parental credit cards. Mocking whatever it is to flock, to knit the quivering air into a cloak thrown over infinity. Thank you. I really like that, a, qu a cloak thrown over infinity. And it's actually in this shape, isn't it, of a sort of a, 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 a like a murmur, it's like a, not a perfect shape, like a teardrop shape almost. Yes, this particular M word of starlings. 
um, <laughs> gathered in the sky and stayed in a heart shape, but it was kind of animated and mobile and just moved sideways over the over the landscape. And so you slipped that in the book just to give Helen uh, a bit of trouble with the typesetting, you know, like type, <laughs> typesetter's nightmare, isn't it? Trying to, trying to yeah. do that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to bring up the subject of birds? I wondered if that's something that you find yourself being inspired by, because it feels as if we're often looking up, we're often looking up at the sky, at the stars, or sometimes we're looking down. You know, there's, there's one poem, isn't there, where, where the uh, workers on a construction site are looking 50 floors down from the top. So you take these kind of um, uh, cinematic viewpoints. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think poems, yeah, like like films and paintings, have a perspective, and you know, you to be able to express depth and distance in a poem, I think is important. And so, yes, trying to set that up is part of what I try and do. My dad's a painter, Chris Fiddies, and I grew up in a kind of next to his studio, smelling turps every every uh, breakfast time. And uh, uh-huh. and so his work probably influenced me greatly, has done. I don't know if you remember, there was a novelist called J.L. Carr who wrote A Month in the Country, but on the side of things, Jim Carr had a publishing company and used to publish little poems that you'd carry around in, in, your, in your pocket. It was a pocket-sized poem book. And he and my dad were great friends, and they used to, he used to get my dad to do, you know, the covers and illustrations. So, you know, there's uh, John Clare, who was a local poet because hmm. I grew up in Northamptonshire, and, uh, you know, or Thomas Hardy, and that would illustrate them. And so I think that my father's interest in sort of lyrical poetry, I think, and, and his painting has been a big influence on me. And so how to frame your subject and how to think about your subject in a landscape or being part of a cityscape yeah, or even as a portrait, I think really does, has a big influence on how I approach subjects. It's very interesting. So tell me a bit more about how you got into writing poetry yourself. So I think like everybody, you know, you start off, <laughs> there's a teacher at school, isn't there? <laughs> You know, there's always a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a guy called Danny Hickling at my school. There's something about uh, that inspiration. And then I started writing as a job. I, I became a lobbyist. I was in Washington, D.C. for a few years, lobbying on various issues in the U.S. Congress. And I ended up writing something called Dollars and Cents, which was this kind of news magazine. And so, you know, starting writing that and learning about compression and that being a day job then thinking well actually i'm not actually writing about what i really care about here you know while defense systems are very interesting at one level they don't pluck my heartstrings so uh, i started writing poetry back then and then left it for a long time and it was only really around 13 years ago that i started again in, in more earnestly and i, I think that was just in, in reaction to various things happening in my life and finding just I found poetry was a very good way to deal with them. Hmm. So that's when I kind of got back in earnest. And every morning I wake up at about six and I spend an hour writing poetry. It's, do you really? You have a, a routine? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, Gosh. I kind of have to do it. If it's <laughs> or, or revising, you know, it's, it's one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's very good to have that discipline. There was another influence as well, actually. I played in a number of indie bands uh, back in the day, and uh, the bit that I liked best was the songwriting. I was a useless guitar player and, you know, and a <laughs> rubbish singer. And um, luckily, I always, you know, had people who could do that for me, but I did like writing the songs. Now, the title of the book we talked a bit about before, but the fact that it's Other Saints, it, it sounds like it might be you're about to embark on a kind of knocking down of organized religion. And um, we've certainly got our share of saints, gods, cupids, angels, as well as the other kind of icons that you talked about, you know, the the kind of sporting, political, pop icons. I did feel, again, more a sense of despair about the false gods. I suppose that's what you were saying, isn't it? But at the same time, there's what comes through is a need to to believe in something spiritual. So we've got some poems that are almost devoid of cynicism, which is interesting. Yeah. And 
Actually, there is this poem, the Kodachrome Book of the Dead, which I felt was talking about perhaps, I can remember my, my mother used to get out the, the books of photos and we'd look, you know, we still, we still have photos that go a long way back. We won't have those photos in the future because they're all digital. And I thought this is a bit of a sort of, um, a, a yearning for something that isn't, that's not, not going to be the same in the future. I don't know if I read that right. Yeah, I think, I think actually it's, it's, um, it's a big vote for, for photography <laughs> in one sense, you know, and, and, and I don't know if, if you remember, but there was a, a period when the, the worst thing that could happen would be somebody showing you their holiday snaps and, <laughs> or even worse, their holiday slides. And so there was this sense of, you know, it was al- almost like looking at dead people you, when you see those bleached out slides. And, and I suppose mm. um, the, the fact is we don't keep any of that now. Now it's the equivalent of seeing somebody's holiday snaps is going on in Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to get inside wondering what it was like before all of that, how we recorded our memories. So I guess that's really what this poem's about. The Kodachrome Book of the Dead. Frozen in their Kodaks, our old folk wear slippers to protect the carpet from their feet. Colours leach, the tap drips. Dinner lingers in another room. A yucca erupts on the lawn. The lounge is an orgy of fakery. Leatherette armchairs, plaster dogs, silk orchids, mock encyclopedias and more fringe than necessary on lamps, hairdos, lips, pelmets, plus random tassels wherever there is dangling and come-hither velvet. If a grandparent smiles, it's like a wolf had stopped by for tea and a slice of Battenberg. Parents vogue in folky knitwear surrounded by cigarettes and the 60s. Is this how they will see us? Our early years tucked into albums, balanced on the knee like babies? Will pages crackle as laminates separate and we stare back, red-eyed as hounds from blind pubs? Whereas our last few decades will click past in seconds on a screen, backlit, cropped and cherry bright. There they can find us between swipes, catching our breath, Wiping the joy from our sleeves. Now, I said before about how you know not everything is has this kind of slightly sort of slightly cynical edge, and and the, there are some very affectionate poems, I think, and glimpses into relationships. I wondered if you might read, I believe in miracles, which I rather liked. Yeah, it'd be a pleasure. Um, of course, you know that where the title comes from, right? Well, there's that Colin Blundstone song. Oh. That's a great spot. I thought you were gonna. I was gonna. Thought you were gonna say hot chocolate. Oh yes, of course. Actually, I think Colin Blundstone was. Um, I don't believe in miracles. This one is about one of those anniversaries. I believe in miracles. The restaurant had long boiled over. Menus wiped, folded beside tills. An anniversary candle still flickers. I scribble the air for the bill between the clams and the house white. We forget the subplot of our bodies. How our skin tells one story. The hard proof marks of marriage on stomach, brow, liver and thigh. While our spirits ad lib as if auditioning barefoot for anything. An overgenerous tip despite the spelling mistake on the cake. Ridiculously wrong coats at the door. The obligatory argument on the way home with flat iron silence. The surprising absence of rain. The sigh of waking roses in the hallway. The dimmer switch that needs fixing, that always needs fixing. An exhibition of family and friends on the mantelpiece and one embrace before the empty fireplace. Then the softly killing fingers of this, our half-remembered song. The last dance around the kitchen, negotiating the knives and pans with the mortgage payments on hold, just our wonky, funky history on base. I like the way this is a 
an affectionate and realistic kind of vignette of a, a middle-aged marriage and you know you, you, you something nice happens and it kind of goes a bit bad and then it goes okay at the end and I found that very comforting and and lovely you know in the, the Roberta Flack reference see I got that one that poem plays off a poem called Solo Dolorose which is about George Clooney and how upset my wife was when she found out he was getting married to Amal oh really yeah do you want to read that one is that it's from another book yeah and this is coming down and finding how distressed she was on George Clooney announcing his wedding plans, Solo Doloroso. He's been taken, she says, by a human rights lawyer. It's just not fair. She attempts to stack the mechanically unstackable metallic capsules of coffee, which tumble like command modules from a failed lunar landing. I told you he wasn't gay. She says, as if it was my fault, his heterosexuality. Espresso, ristretto, lothario, cunnilingo, fellatio, stupio, from strong to soft, daily he came, in multiple flavours and accents, without mess or recrimination. It won't last, she says. What will they talk about all day? Torture? Under the rack of dried spices, an espresso has been eviscerated. The plug I once fixed ripped away. A granular slag heap in the drip tray now spills a lake como of tears. I offer tea. She snorts. George Clooney has left the kitchen. <laughs> Great last line. Another skill that Live Cannon seems to have is putting out books so quickly. I guess with the shortest lead time in the whole poetry world, I would say. Yeah. Don't you think? I don't, I don't know how she does it, frankly. No, I don't. She is a miracle. How she does it on top of all of her directing and writing and being a mum as well is incredible. That's amazing. The poem I was hoping you might read is called Looking Up. And it's quite near the end, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was written uh, January the 1st, 2021 in the morning. Uh-huh. That was when there was a sense that we perhaps turned the corner after the pandemic. Yeah. It's called, called Looking Up. The 2021 balloon took its time rising, nuzzling each balcony like a big silver cat. Some clapped, others cheered or reached out to touch the ripple of its foil streamers. One family lined up for a selfie as it nudged higher, lifted not by helium, but the element we mine from human hearts that is gas, liquid and solid. It climbed, still inquisitive, over railings and waving children, beyond the top floor and away, and up we gazed, pointing at the shrinking day star, dazzling as the spike of a needle. A great sense of hope and the upwards. Everything is pointing upwards, even the spike of the needle. There's a lot of pandemic poetry around, and not all of it is that original so yeah it's based on a on the observation of a one of those silver party balloons bobbling up into the sky Hmm. the the night after new year's eve Hmm. and um i live on the 16th floor so that's quite a long way up and down we haven't really had a chance to talk about any of the poems set in the in the middle east there is one more poem i would hope you would read because a few years ago, particularly, I got into writing quite a few poems about the workplace. And I suppose I was thinking about when I was in the the corporate field, it feels like about 500 years ago now. But anyway, so I, I really enjoy a good workplace poem. And I thought this was very funny to the Canon C3520i. And I wondered if you might see us out on that one. This is called To the Canon 3520i. Are you familiar with that particular model, Robin? I'm just uh, peering at my printer. Not quite sure. No, I've got an HP printer now, but can't swear that I'm familiar with that particular model, no. You realise after this Planet Poetry, you you should be looking for sponsorship. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. To the Canon C3520i. You were hardly built to thrill, but we had our moments, our tugs of love and war, 
when I dragged copies bleeding colour from the slapping jaws of Tray 4, the thousand flamenco fans you rocked up from annual accounts and reports, the sheets you splattered Rorschach black, analysing our post-traumatic desk disorders, those private sunrises under your cover that climaxed with paper, a regretful sigh and the rustle of readjustment. Mornings, you warmed like a dog on a porch as stress seethed from grey meeting rooms. At night, you spilled shivering first novels over adjacent carpet tiles. What about the motivational posters showing alpine slopes and lavender fields that faded as gently as your toner? And the snackable philosophies you copied from internet Wittgensteins like You don't have to be crazy to work here, but it helps. Only the sane believe you. As for the owner of the drunken buttocks pressed to your scanner like an entry into hell, you never have to tell. Today, you print a confidential letter from the Department of Human Resources, which is neither human nor resourceful. It thanks me for my years of excellent service. It explains that I'm no longer required. The corporate we is sprinkled goldenly. There's an incorrect use of colon, plus a special typo just for me of redundancy spelled redundancing. Someone must have been in a hurry, unlike you, who I switched to orange standby. You drop an octave. Best not to ask for whom the ink drum hums. Soon, friend, you will be as paperless as me. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. About halfway through when I was reading this, I thought, are we going to get the drunken buttocks on the on the copy? Ah, cool. oh, yeah, they're in there as well. Excellent. Ching. <laughs> A really nice one to finish on. Now, I, what I, I don't want you to go until I've asked you the question, which is, what are you working on now? Is there anything coming out or are you, have you got a project that you're, that you're um, tinkering around with or a big plan? Um, well, yeah, I've, I've had a special interest recently doing some translation of a Catalan poet, uh, Miguel Marti y Pol. Ah. And so he, he basically wrote a lot of poems during Catalonia's um, recovery from Francoism. You know, and I think, I think he's a very humble man and we've talked about the people of Catalonia, it's, it's, it's landscape, talks quite a lot about national identity, but in a non-bombastic way. Yeah. You know, and I found that was an interesting challenge. He actually, again, he worked. He worked in a factory um, until he was 43 when he had to retire for health reasons, but then just spent the rest of his career writing. I think he died in 2005. So it's just discovering his poetry and wanting to bring that to a an English-speaking audience that has been a big motivation recently. I'm married to a Catalan, so so that's one of the reasons for uh, for um, having that field of interest. Ah, interesting. Yes, yes. We uh, we had Matthew Stewart on here recently, who's who lives in Spain. So we had a, a big sort of um, England Spain thing going on there. Ah, yes. The English person abroad and 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 how one's always a foreigner, even even if you spend 30 years in another country. So, Mark, it's been great having you on the poddy as our guest and fabulous book, Other Saints Are Available from a Live Canon. And I I hope our listeners will go out and buy it and read it if they haven't already. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you very much, Robin. It's been a real pleasure having this chat. Thanks a lot, Mark. So Mark Finney's his book, Other Saints Are Available. I really enjoyed the readings from that book. One one of the things that struck me that um, wasn't mentioned was the fact that his poems sound so good. You know, there's a there's a real kind of musicality about the language that sort of jumped out to me. Little phrases like uh, brash parakeets. <laughs> and the fact that he, his dad was a painter as well, that there is a kind of broad sweep, you know, that idea of a figure being in a landscape mm, mm. Um, and there being people around and so on. I think he did that really well. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And opening the book at random and 
I'm seeing this line, uh, the pool draped over her shoulders like a cape of kingfishers. And, um, you know, open on another page. What have we got? The chorus was accidental, stuck with band-aids and jam. It's striking, isn't it? Striking language. Yeah, I really rate him. I, di- I didn't know his work before. That poem that uh, came third in the National Poetry Competition, the Polite Safety Notice. Mm, mm. And I, I just, well, I love this idea of the men roaring into flame from the neck up. You pointed out to this kind of burning heads kind of idea yeah. that was going around. Yes, uh, yes. But th- there was one bit that just really sort of caught my imagination was that uh, the line, I'm probably garbling it, slopped down into the Victorian sewage system of which we are still so proud, something like that. It kind of talked to me about, you know, things that are underground are like things that are subconscious or hidden or, and this idea of sewage system and being Victorian, it's, it, mm. it just talks to kind of really old stultified values that are no longer relevant. And we're still proud of them, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I just thought that that just gave it that depth, you know, there's person on a bus, but then there's what's underground as well. And there's all, all, all kinds of things. I, I just thought it was a masterful poem. Huh. And I enjoyed that my lockdown quiff kind of comparing himself to a, a Burnley defender, you know, some kind of <laughs> footballer. Um, yeah. <laughs> but then he starts talking about world leaders and despots and their hair and things. It's sort of, uh, I really like the way that kind of escalated into some kind of strange, you know, follicle-based critique of, <laughs> of world leaders. And very much of its moment as well, you know, that the, the names he that he mentions in there it puts you in the period. But then yeah. it comes back to this kind of his wife getting out of the lady shave. <laughs> yes. I'm so particularly, because I'm writing a lot about memory at the moment, particularly drawn to uh, poems that kind of touch on that. And his poem, The Code of Chrome Book of the Dead, I thought that was great with all the the descriptions of the the sort of furniture people were sitting on with tassels and, you know, the faux leather and, you know, people sitting there with their cigarettes and, you know. An orgy of fakery. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful phrase. And (laughs) then how it sort of compared to Insta feeds now or cherry bright images or towards the end. Oh, yes, yes. Whereas our last few decades will click past in seconds on a screen backlit, cropped and cherry bright. Yeah, lovely. And that that business about his kind of uncomfortable uh, trio of him and his wife and George Clooney, (laughs) (laughs) that's what made me laugh. Yes, that was. uh... What his wife said, what will they talk about all day? Torture? (laughs) (laughs) It just really made me laugh. That's a proper kind of clip from a, a real relationship. It's very sophisticated writing and it could easily fall into just almost cynicism, but I don't feel it went that way. And I, I think he's uh, using a lot of mm. these as conceits and he knows what he's doing. And there's definitely a sense of hope underneath much of this writing. And the way he was describing the sort of project in a way at the beginning was this sort of idea of the, the footnote. There's always an alternative to objects of desire. I mean, that's not quite his words, but, you know, he's talking about things people want. And, you know, the asterisk is that there are a, there are alternatives out there that are, that are different, thinking very much about the polarisation of arguments at the moment and trying to break, he said his intent was to try and break polarised barriers. Mm, mm. I don't know where poetry is on that, but I think... Does, but, it, does it make anything happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I mean, I think I like that phrase about poetry being the precise expression of mixed feelings, something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I do think that, for me anyway, poetry exists in that kind of grey, ambiguous area quite happily, really. Yeah. It really makes me want to go out and buy this book, actually. The poems sang to me, you know, there was a real beauty about them. Do you think his living in Dubai is a factor here? I, I, I started to feel the book is saturated with not just the consumer world, today's world, uh, but also the history below it, as you say. And, and he takes different viewpoints, unusual viewpoints, you know, like a cinematographer, sometimes he's, there's, there's a poem where he's up yeah. on the top of a skyscraper looking down. And when we talked about the fact that birds crop up a lot and birds I've used, and I'm just thinking, you know, okay, I've never been to Dubai, but my impression is that those Middle Eastern countries that have been 
developed out of the desert, out of out of nothing, out of sand, to these fabulous, air conditioned, luxurious consumer societies. And all very vertical. And all very vertical. And up in the air, yeah. yeah, and I mean that poem where we, where we enjoyed a description of you know a lounge of. Uh, yeah. A lounge as an orgy of fakery. I think you yeah. know th- th- this guy knows what fakery is. You know he he sees it every day in that sense. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, just thinking about that. Well, also I think that that thing of being displaced kind of makes you think of home in a more vivid way, really, because yeah. uh, you know suddenly the things you were invisible to you, and by the contrast of where you live now, seem quite vivid and unusual. So it's funny, isn't it? You and I both have those times, and I'm sure other poets do, when you just feel completely in the dumps with poetry. And you just think, what the, why are we doing this? Why are we reading it? Why are we trying to write it? So what do you do when you when you hit that kind of la with poetry? What do you read? Of course, you read poetry criticism. <laughs> <laughs> there is that kind of... That time when you you just can't face another poem, somehow the cacophony yeah. of all these poets talking kind of gets too much. Reading people who are enthusiastic about poetry kind of revivifies it. Mm. The thing just lately that I, I picked up again, one time I was uh, on the other side of the pond, as they say, and I randomly picked up this book uh, called Nine Gates, Entering the Mind of Poetry, and it's essays by Jane Hirschfield. Uh, ah. And uh, she's a extremely famous. You know my sort of absence of knowledge on um, American poets. Um, oh, you you like to make out you've got no knowledge of American poets, but yeah. Well, I, I don't know any of her work, <laughs> but apart from this book. Um, but apparently, she's incredibly well known. Uh, she's born in 1953 and has won bazillions of awards and is really super well thought of. Um, yeah. What I liked about this uh, collection of essays was it was really informed by Buddhism and uh, her examples included, you know, Japanese and Chinese writing and so on. Mm. As somebody that has spent time in the past in Buddhist retreats and things, that kind of appeals to me, really. One of the um, essays I've been reading was Two Secrets, it's called, on poetry's inward and outward looking. And anything that has secrets in the title is obviously catnip, isn't it? We need to know the secrets. Seven secrets that will make you a better poet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, But she's talking about the relationship between people and landscape and and poetry that looks inward inside a person and, you know, poetry that looks outward into the world. Mm. And she has these kind of examples. She says poems that don't have any reference to the outside world, or, you know, sort of very few. She quotes an example by Paul Salan, who's one of my favourite poets. And he's got a three-line poem, You were my death, you could be held when from me everything fell. So it's kind of very bleak, but it, it doesn't refer to it. You know, there's no colour, there's no kind of anything in the outside world in there. It's just yeah. the poet thinking about death. But anyway, she has... Um, this idea that uh, poems that have images of the outside world can be split into three stances. Oh. I quite like this idea of schematizing things. I always find, I invariably find myself disagreeing with it, but uh, the first stance for her is what she calls the subjective, and that's the poems that refer to the outside world, but it's like, you know, like a monologue with the human consciousness. And she gives an example of a poem that she is clearly contemptuous of, which is Shelley's poem, The Cloud. Shelley becomes the cloud. He's like anthropomorphized and <laughs> yeah. speaks in his voice. I, I, the first two, two or three lines of that is, um, I bring fresh showers for the thirsting flowers from the seas and the streams. I bear light shade for the leaves when laid in their noonday dreams. And so on. So he's just speaking as a cloud. Mm, mm. But she quotes with approval this kind of very short poem by uh, Cheslov Miwash, uh, which is called Window. And the poem goes, I looked out the window at dawn and saw a young apple tree translucent in brightness. 
and when they looked out at dawn once again, an apple tree laden with fruit stood there. Many years had probably gone by, but I remember nothing of what happened in my sleep. Oh, and so she's saying, you know, he's looking at something in the outside world, but it's it's clearly all about him, you know. Mm, mm. A second stance, which she calls the reflective, and she says it's the most common in current writing. Here the poet looks at the outer world with a steady and questioning eye, neither imposing the self upon it nor disappearing into it. So it's kind of like a meeting. She quotes a poem by Izumi Shikiubu. Last year's fragile vanished snow is falling now again. If only seeing you could be like this. So that's a kind of somebody looking at snow falling, um, which is something going on in the outside world, but, you know, it being a dialogue with her missing somebody. So sort of reflecting on on your own feelings or thoughts or whatever. Yeah. I'm thinking of this term reflective. So she means looking outwards at nature or whatever, but then bringing your thoughts back in to something about your own self. Is that? Yeah. Is that sort of? It, it's that thing where you're not dominate. You're not sort of like puppeting it, like you're the cloud. You know, you're not being inside the cloud, telling the cloud what to do. You're looking at the outside world and in a, a sort of dialogue with it, but right. not imposing yourself on it or allowing you to be overwhelmed by nature. You're in a balance in a way. Okay. She thinks that's the most common way of looking at, at the world. And so the final stance is this objective stance. She says, the earth does not speak our language. It's this kind of thing of erasing yourself from the, the nature you're depicting. And there's something by Basho, you know, the Japanese poet, the, the sea grows dark, faint calls of passing ducks are white, lightning into its darkness, a white heron calls. So it's that feeling that there's no person there. But the thing is that somebody is is making that observation and choosing what to see. Yes. So even though it's not it, it, referencing a person, there's you know nobody looking at it in the poem, or obviously there's a choice being made by the poet about what to yeah. what to show, and that choice is the thing that betrays the humanity of it. Mm. But I don't know what I learned by that, but it, it it's kind of three different ways of approaching writing you know it'd be quite interesting to try and write something where you entirely erase yourself you know as much as possible i know t.s Eliot had that idea of being the invisible poet that he didn't really want to his own personality and all the rest of it to to mm. be in the poem which i think he singularly failed at <laughs> but um it would be quite a, a, an exercise i think yes. you know, how do you write something that has nothing of human in it, well, it, it, but still retains meaning. It would be an exercise, and um, you know, you could take the same topic if you like and write it in, write a poem in those three different stances that she's talking about. It seems to me that yeah. the idea of the objective, where there is no, there is the person has been taken out of it, as you said, the writer has made a decision as to what they are putting down in writing, what they are seeing out of all the things they could be seeing, what they're paying attention to, so that surely does insert the writer into it. So ha can it ever hmm. be, can something a human rights ever be totally objective in that sense, I wonder? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they can. And the reader, uh, I think, would often, one reads into whatever poem it is you're reading, I think one tends to draw things out of it for oneself. So even yeah. if the writer tries to take themselves out of the poem, the reader will be in the poem somewhere. Yeah. Definitely. So that nothing is ever uninhabited. Yeah, yeah. So these essays are, yeah, kind of interesting, I think. Um, and the fact, the difference comes from the fact that she clearly has an understanding of Buddhism and Zen, mm. and, and those kind of insights have informed the way she she writes and thinks about poetry, and that's probably quite refreshing. Mm. Jane Hirschfeld. Yeah. So how about you, Robin? What, what if you in this jaundiced anti-poetry mode have you uh, been drawn to anything like you i i am sort of drawn to 
poetry criticism um, or reading around poetry if I'm not feeling like reading actual poems. And I've just gone back to an essay by Ben Lerner, who I may have mentioned before on the poddy, I'm not sure, Uh, American poet and writer. He's a, a big thinker. He's written novels as well as collections of poetry. In fact, it was a novel that I read of his first of all called 1004, which is um, hard to describe really. <laughs> I gave a copy to a friend who I think she was a bit sort of dumbfounded by it, I think. I didn't get any, <laughs> didn't get any comments afterwards, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> and I've also got this, it's a sort of a selected really, called No Art. That's quite a sort of bold, decisive title, isn't it, in a way? In, indeed, indeed. He's quite well known for this controversial long essay that he wrote in 2016 called The Hatred of Poetry. It's a, it's a good old 40 page. It's very interesting. He, he brings a lot of learning and ideas and, and other poets into it. So I'd like to just read the beginning, which gets us into where he's going with this idea, the hatred of poetry. Of course, as you talked about catnip just now, that's a sort of catnip title, isn't it? I mean, there have been these defences of poetry over the years, yeah. haven't there? Philip Sidney and old Shelley. This is how he begins. In ninth grade English, Mrs. X required us to memorise and recite a poem. I went and asked the Topeka High librarian to direct me to the shortest poem she knew, and she suggested Marianne Moore's Poetry which in the 1967 version reads in its entirety, I too dislike it. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. I remember thinking my classmates were suckers for having mainly memorised Shakespeare's 18th sonnet, whereas I only had to recite 24 words. In fact, Poetry by Marianne Moore is a very difficult poem to commit to memory, as I demonstrated by failing to get it right each of the three chances I was given by Mrs. X, who was looking down at the text, my classmates cracking up. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes on to talk about this, um, this poem where it starts with, I too dislike it. And he talks about the fact that he's haunted by this phrase, even now, every time he's introduced at a reading or another poet is introduced every time he picks up a book every time he starts writing he's thinking i too dislike it (laughs) (laughs) and this this idea of the poet having a a perfect contempt for it but in the poem in moore's poem this is when one discovers a place for the genuine this little poem is very much like that paul salan poem that you read just now isn't it that doesn't doesn't talk about anything apart. It's all very abstract. Yeah. It doesn't refer to the outside world. Lerner goes on to to discuss this idea of do, do people hate poetry because there is this some sense from birth that poetry should come out of us naturally. It should be something that anyone can kind of express in a sort of natural way, yeah. um, and yet and yet we can't. Uh, and also this idea of actually. Does one ever get to the perfect poem? One can only strive to create a space for what might be a genuine poem and never quite knowing what the genuine poem is. And maybe that's also what makes it hateful, if you like, that that beats us up, which goes back to what we were saying about we fall out of love with poetry, even, even though we love poetry. And I wonder whether this is the nub of it. 